Fear not, and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. reporter was interviewing a man who had turned 100 years old. And the reporter asked him, what are you the most proud of? And the man said, I am most proud of the fact that I don't have an enemy in the world. And the reporter said, well, that's beautiful. Any secret to how you've accomplished that? And the centenarian said, well, I outlived every one of them. Hopefully, as Christians, we're not just trying to outlive our enemies. Hopefully, we're praying for them. Hopefully, we're loving them. And hopefully, we're seeking to make peace with them when it's possible. But there is at least one enemy that we'll have until we go to our eternal home. And Peter identifies him for us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 when he says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. By definition, an adversary is one's enemy or one's opponent. So Peter says that our enemy is the devil, and what I want to do today is spend some time examining what Scripture has to say about our enemy so that we might be better equipped to stand against him. Let's start with the terminology associated with our enemy. And let's do so by turning to Revelation chapter 12. If you'll go to Revelation chapter 12, and in particular, I want you to vote, notice verse 9. Because it's in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 12 that the many identities associated with our enemy are brought together into one phrase. Where this great dragon who was thrown down is identified as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. John associates the serpent from the Garden of Eden with the titles the devil and Satan. Now, I know that's not new information for you, and I'm sorry, this microphone is not wanting to be on my ear today, so I'm having to mess with it. I know that's not new information to you, that the serpent from the Garden of Eden is identified as the devil and Satan, but do you realize Technically, Revelation chapter 12 is the one place in Scripture where it's explicitly brought these three titles together. The last book of the Bible actually brings these titles of serpent, devil, and Satan together for us. And it's helpful for us to understand what the terms Satan and the devil actually mean. Because we don't always uh, know, we know them as, as titles associated with the one who is the serpent. But the term devil derives from the Greek word diabolos, which means accuser or slanderer, and is metaphorically applied to a man who, by opposing the cause of God, may be said to act the part of the devil or to side with him. Because you may remember that one occasion where someone is called a devil in Scripture. 
The term devil appears 32 times, all of which are in the New Testament, but we also have the term Satan. And the term Satan is often capitalized, and I don't know why I'm clicking ahead because I did not make a PowerPoint slide for that. Um, the term Satan is most often capitalized in your Bible, but Satan is not a proper name. Satan is a Hebrew term that has the same meaning as the term devil does in Greek. It refers to an adversary. It refers to one who is an opponent, one who tries to block your way, or even one who is an accuser of you. The term Satan appears in 13 verses in the Old Testament, 33 verses in the New Testament, and Jesus, along with the gospel authors, are the first to use it as a proper name. In conjunction with that entity that embodies evil. So based on Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, we can, we can take the serpent and connect him to the one who's called the devil and the one who is called Satan. But what do we know about this entity? What do we know about this one who is our ultimate enemy? We know that we need to be sober-minded and watchful when it comes to him. At least that's what Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. And that's what I want us to do today. This morning, we're going to see what the Bible has to say about this one called the devil and Satan so that we will be sober-minded and watchful in regards to him. So what does the Bible have to say about Satan? I know that may seem like a strange subject matter for a sermon, but there's a reason God's Word includes information about this entity, because he, he wants us to be aware of him. But what does the Bible have to say? I think there's two big conclusions we can come to in regards to Satan, and the first is this. Do not underestimate Satan. Do not underestimate the devil. Because when you journey through Scripture, there's a few descriptions of him that are pretty important for us to notice. First, the Bible describes Satan as evil. Satan is evil. In fact, no less than ten times is Satan identified as the evil one in the New Testament. And the connection between Satan and the title of evil one is most apparent in, in the book of Ephesians. If you go to Ephesians chapter 6, you look at verse 11. We're told to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. A few verses later in verse 16, same chapter, when we're instructed to take up the shield of faith, we're instructed to do so because it, will, it can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You notice that in Ephesians chapter 6? The devil and the evil one are used interchangeably in that text. That indicates that the devil is, in fact, the evil one. And this characteristic positions Satan in direct contrast to God, who is identified in James chapter 1 and verse 17 as the father of lights from whom comes every good and perfect gift. The devil is the evil one. God is the source of all that is good. They are in direct opposition to each other in that regard. See, the point is, you don't underestimate someone who is evil. You don't underestimate someone who possesses ulterior motives. You don't underestimate someone whose agenda is opposed to your original created state 
and your life's ultimate purpose. You don't underestimate that one. But just because he's evil, that's not the only reason we should not underestimate the devil. We should not underestimate the devil also because he is dangerous. Satan is dangerous. If you go back to Revelation chapter 12, it's worth pointing out that in John's vision, Satan is depicted as a great red dragon with a tail that swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. While many attempt to find symbolic significance in this act, the reference here in Revelation chapter 12 is not to the fall of angelic beings or the dragon's influence over specific individuals. No, the reference is to the fact that he's a formidable foe. That he is so strong, so powerful, so big that he can impact significant matters. And I think it's important that we have metaphors in Scripture depicting Satan. Here in Revelation 12, it's a, a dragon. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, it's a serpent. A serpent. i got to be honest. I hate snakes. I hate them with the deepest hatred that is humanly possible. Serpents are silent predators who move with caution and strike with quickness. Venomous snakes don't even have to fight with their victims. They simply inject their venom and let the circulatory system of the prey do the rest of the work. I hate, I hate, I hate snakes. And I believe I have biblical validity for that feeling. You don't underestimate a snake. But that's not the only animal that is associated with Satan. You may have noticed in that first Peter passage that he's depicted as a lion. In Scripture, the lion is used as a symbol of might and is recognized for its power. It's recognized for its speed. It's recognized for its ferocity. Lions are patient when it comes to hunting their prey. They wait to attack an animal when it is in its most vulnerable state. The lion's primary hunting tactic is to separate its prey from the herd, and then it overpowers the lone creature with its strength. Now, when you think about Satan depicted as a snake and depicted as a lion, shouldn't that tell you some things about his character about his nature, about his tactics. Satan is a powerful entity. And the point is, you don't underestimate someone who is dangerous. You don't underestimate, underestimate someone who is a threat to your safety. You don't underestimate someone who is targeting you for destruction. But we also need to understand that Satan is crafty. In fact, that's the very first description we're given about Satan in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Satan is identified by Jesus 
as a liar and the father of lies in John chapter 8 and verse 44. Paul refers to him as the tempter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5. In other words, when you take those descriptions and you connect them to this fact that he's called crafty, that means he is one who's out to dupe us. He's one who wants to deceive us. He's one who wants to dissuade us from obeying God. And we need to acknowledge that Satan is a brilliant strategist. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul told that congregation that he was afraid their thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ by Satan's cunningness and deceptiveness. He then went on, Paul went on to say a few verses later in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 11, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And the point that I believe he is making is that Satan is so intelligent and so sneaky that he knows how to make sin appear innocent. And let's not forget that we're instructed in Ephesians 6.11 to put on the whole armor of God so that we'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Yes, the devil has schemes. He's strategizing. He's planning. He's coming up with manipulative ways to confuse you, to affect you, to influence you. Satan's crafty. And the point is, you don't underestimate someone who is scheming. Someone who is trying to outwit you. Someone who is crafty. And one last thing about Satan and why we shouldn't underestimate him. It's because he's powerful. The dragon that Satan is compared to in Revelation chapter 12 is depicted as possessing ten horns. And in apocalyptic literature, horns were a symbol of strength. And the fact that he had ten horns, ten being a number associated with completeness, it seems, seems to indicate that he has great power. And this shouldn't be surprising to us considering the fact that Satan is identified as the prince of demons in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 24, the ruler of this world in John chapter 12 and verse 31, the god of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, and the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. You don't receive such titles of rulership unless you possess power. In fact, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, we're told that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And the point is that Satan is influential in this fallen world. You don't underestimate someone who is powerful. You don't underestimate someone who possesses leverage. You don't underestimate someone who holds a position of authority. So don't underestimate Satan. He's evil, he's dangerous, he's crafty, and he's powerful, and you don't underestimate someone who possesses those qualities. But at the same time, a study of what the Bible says about our enemy leads to an additional conclusion and that is that we should not overemphasize Satan either. You know, the Bible doesn't have near as much to tell us about Satan as we might like. 
And I think that's on purpose because the Bible is not about our enemy. The Bible is about our Savior. And so while we must not underestimate Satan, we must simultaneously not overemphasize him either. And there are three important reasons why. The first is because Satan is inferior. Now, I want to take a moment to play a little game with you. It's a game I've played here before, and so if you've participated in this game and you know the answers, please let those who have not participated answer the question. It's not complicated, don't worry. I'm a very simplistic individual. It's called the opposites game. And all I'm going to do is put a word on the screen, and you're going to tell me the opposite of it. You ready? You think you can handle this? You good? Okay. Night. Oh, you are good. All right. Dark. Wonderful. One more or two more. Evil. All right. You guys are intelligent. Did you know that? What about this one? Ah! It's not God. God has no equal. The opposite of Satan at very best is Michael, the archangel. The one contending with Satan in Jude verse 9. The one who's depicted at war with Satan in Revelation chapter 12. God is not the opposite of Satan because God has no equal. Amen? I like to yell. We have to remember, Satan is a created being. He's been made. He didn't pre-exist. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, it asserts that God, through Christ, created everything, including those things that exist in heaven and those things that are invisible to us. This would include entities like Satan. And that means that as a created being, Satan is significantly inferior to God. Think about it. Satan is not omnipotent. He's limited in his power. He could not sift Peter without seeking permission first. And he cannot overpower us with temptation to the point that we cannot resist. Because as we'll talk about in a moment, God gives us a way of escape. Satan's not omnipotent. He's neither omniscient. He's limited in his knowledge. Just like all other created beings, there are some things he doesn't know. Remember, Jesus pointed out that concerning that day or hour that he's going to return, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father knows that hour. Think about it. If Satan was omniscient, then he would have kept Jesus alive instead of orchestrating his murder if he was omniscient, but he's not. And he's not omnipresent either. He cannot be everywhere at once. Just like all other created beings, he's confined to one location at one time. This is apparent from Luke chapter 4 and verse 13, where we're told that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. If Satan was omnipresent, then why would he have to depart from the presence of Jesus? Satan's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, and he's not omnipresent. He's nothing like our God. He's significantly inferior to him. And because Satan is limited in his abilities, Scripture says the one who is in you, that's a reference to God whose spirit dwells in us, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 
You remember Satan's the ruler of this world, the God of this world. The one who is in you is greater than him. So the point is, don't elevate Satan to a position of equal standing with God because he's inferior to God. It's not like Thanos versus the Avengers. It's not like that. God is far superior to Satan. So don't overemphasize Satan. Also realize this. Satan is resistible. Have you ever heard someone say or said it yourself, Satan made me do it? That is complete fallacy and completely unbiblical. Satan can tempt me. Satan can influence me. Satan can lure me. Satan can deceive me. Satan can entice me. But Satan cannot make me sin. Whether or not I sin is a decision I make. Do you remember how James described the sin process in James chapter 1, verse 14 through 15? He said, each person is 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 tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Nowhere in that process is Satan mentioned. That's not to say that Satan and the world system that he established cannot tempt us. Instead, it indicates that we do not need Satan in order to be tempted. We are quite capable of tempting ourselves. Friday night, as most of y'all know, Sarah and I are trying to live, live much healthier lives than we have in the past. Friday night, Sarah comes downstairs and goes, I need something sweet. I'm going to make chocolate chip cookies. I had four before the night was over. We're quite capable of tempting ourselves. I know that's a silly example, but think about it. You ever put yourself in a position that you shouldn't have put yourself in because it created a temptation for you? You go to a movie you know you shouldn't go to because of the content. You go out with a group of friends that you know are going to be doing something you shouldn't do, but you choose to hang out with them anyway, knowing what's going to happen. Satan didn't make you do that. You chose to be there on your own. We are quite capable of creating our own temptation and putting ourselves in our own position to sin. Satan is resistible. He cannot make me sin. And all too often we approach temptation with a defeatist mentality. What I mean is we assume that it's inevitable that we're going to sin. And part of the the reason we view sin like this is because we think Satan is so powerful that we won't be able to resist him. But let's not forget what God said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not, he will not, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to stand or endure it. 
if we have a defeatist mentality towards temptation and sin, it's an affront to the very word of God to say that it's inevitable I'm going to sin. God promises the possibility of escape from temptation. That means there will always be a way for us to avoid it, and if there's always a path out of temptation, then that means Satan cannot make me sin, and he is in fact resistible. So here's the point. We must not overemphasize Satan's power by assuming that he forces us to sin. All Satan can do is tempt me. He cannot make me sin. I still have the capacity to decline his temptations and find God's escape route. So do not over, overemphasize Satan because he is resistible. And do not overemphasize Satan because he is conquered. It's in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 that Satan's future is shared with us. We're told that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But I believe Satan's conquered state is not just a futuristic event. That's because there's this one occasion that Jesus was casting out demons, and his opponents accused him of doing it because he was so associated with Satan. It's in Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And Jesus responded by saying, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And then a couple of verses later, picking up in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28, Jesus said, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus seems to be indicating that the only reason he can cast out demons or plunder the people that Satan has stolen was because he had tied Satan up. In fact, Jesus used the exact same word in his tying up or binding illustration that was used in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2 when John said that Satan was bound for a thousand years. That means Jesus, in effect, showed his kingdom had already come and his proof was that he had tied up Satan. And this is evident in a couple of other verses. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, after Paul indicated that our record of debts was nailed to the cross. He added that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Since Satan is identified as a ruler, as we've already talked about, he must be included among those rulers and authorities that Jesus triumphed over. And the author of Hebrews, in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, said that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So I believe that Jesus' ministry limited or, or incapacitated Satan to some degree, not completely, but to some degree. And maybe that's why Jesus could say in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And my point is simply this, the Bible speaks of Satan as an already conquered enemy. And because of that, 
regardless of what all that entails or what all that means or what all that implies, because he's already identified as a conquered enemy, I should not overemphasize him. So while we shouldn't underestimate Satan for the reasons we've already talked about, we shouldn't overemphasize him either because he's inferior to God, because he can't make you sin, and because Jesus has already defeated him. So back in 1984 in Bhopal, India, there was a leak at the Union Carbide Pesticide Plant. Around 32 tons, 32 tons of toxic gases were released into the atmosphere. The gas was odorless, colorless, and poisonous. People began to choke, their eyes began to water, and some began to collapse. Thousands were rushed to the hospital, and before the tragedy subsided, over 3,000 people died from a threat they could not see. You can't protect yourself against an enemy that you do not know exists or that you do not acknowledge exists. So our goal today is to equip ourselves with some knowledge about our enemy so that we will give him no opportunity, as Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27 says. And so that we'll be able to stand against his schemes, as Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 says. And so that we won't be devoured by him, as Peter referenced in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. See, the first step to readiness is awareness. And so the goal today is to be aware of our one true enemy. But with that being said, the big takeaway from this lesson should be that Satan is not one to be ignored because he is bigger than us. But he's not one to be feared because our God is bigger than him. This morning, you may find yourself struggling with sin, struggling with doubt, struggling with all the schemes that Satan uses to detract us from our one mission, to, di to dissuade us from our one God. If you find yourself in that struggle, in that battle, then we invite you to come today to let us help you, to let us fight alongside you, to let us tell you about the God who's bigger than Satan. And it may be today that you are still in your sin and need those washed away because as we've talked about today, it's through Jesus Christ that the sins have been dealt with. And it's through Jesus Christ that Satan has been conquered. And maybe today you need to be in Christ by being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you need to respond to the invitation, we offer it now while together we